Good morning. My name is Pam. The Old Testament reading is found in Psalm 63, verses 1 and 5 through 7. A Psalm of David, when he was in the wilderness of Judah, O God, you are my God. I seek you. My soul thirsts for you. My flesh faints for you, as in a dry and weary land where there is no water. My soul is satisfied as with a rich feast, and my mouth praises you with joyful lips when I think of you on my bed and meditate on you in the watches of the night. For you have been my help, and in the shadow of your wings I sing for joy. The word of the Lord. Well, good morning. My name is Eric. The New Testament reading is found in the book of Revelation, chapter 19, verses 6 through 9. And I heard something that sounded like a huge crowd, like rushing water and powerful thunder. They said, Hallelujah! The Lord our God, the Almighty, exercised his royal power. Let us rejoice and celebrate and give him the glory. For the wedding day of the Lamb has come, and his bride has made herself ready. She was given fine, pure, white linen to wear. For the fine linen is the saint's acts of justice. Then the angel said to me, Write this, Favored are those who had been invited to the wedding banquet of the Lamb. He said to me, These are the true words of God. The word of the Lord. Hello, my name is Evan. Thank you for standing for the gospel reading, which is found in Mark chapter 6, verses 32 through 34. They departed in a boat by themselves for a deserted place. Many people saw them leaving and recognized them, so they ran ahead from all the cities and arrived before them. When Jesus arrived and saw a large crowd, he had compassion on them, because they were like sheep without a shepherd. Then he began to teach them many things. The Gospel of the Lord. Let's remain standing as we pray. Gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word to us. We ask that now, by your Holy Spirit, you'd open up our eyes and our ears and our hearts and our minds, that we would see Jesus this morning, and that you would, by the power of your Spirit, conform us to his life. Help us to participate in this miraculous resurrection life, even in this moment, the season that we find ourselves in. We pray all these things in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Everybody said, amen. You may be seated. Well, good morning, everybody. Good to see you today. Welcome, welcome, welcome. My name is Glenn Packiam. I serve as the pastor here at New Life Downtown, one of the congregations at New Life Church. That's very kind of you, Jossie. <laughs> and we've known each other for, what, 20-some years now, um, the Birches. 
Um, I don't know if you've ever had the thought, you know, maybe you found yourself on, a, on a, a dry Monday at work and you start reflecting about what did you want to be when you were a kid? Like, do you ever remember that? Like, you think, what did I want to be when I grew up? Now, we're in the phase now. We have four kids. Our oldest is a junior in high school, so we're doing all the college visit stuff and uh, senior year will be this fall. And of course, we're not just doing college visits. We're talking with a little bit more gravitas about the question of what do you want to do? What, what, what path do you want to sort of head down? And of course, because we're talking about this at the dinner table, the other kids join in. Some are like, you know, I'm thinking about this. And some are saying, think about that. Well, our youngest is nine. And if you know Jane, Jane will not be left out of any conversation. And so Jane decided to announce to us that she is going to be a party planner when she grows up. Like, that's what she's going to do. It's awesome. Like, any party planners in the room, you know. But what Jane has figured out is that life is better when people are together with food. Like, everything's better when there's food. Jane has figured it out. She's figured it out that when groups of people are together, the only thing that would make this better is if we were all eating right now, right? And you, now you're already hungry, like lunchtime's coming. But I can't tell you how many times I've been in, in a, you know, a, a conversation with a friend, and it's it going and going, and maybe it's after service. And then I'll stop and say, you know what? Let's continue this conversation, but add food to it, because that would make this better. Like, there's no conversation that can't be improved by adding food to it. Now we're in, the, we're in this series, you're like, amen. We're in this series called Who is God? And we've been in it um, for several weeks now. And we started with Who is God? The Father. And we did six or seven weeks on the Father. And we talked about the first person of the Trinity. And as Christians, though we don't comprehend this, minis- this mystery, we confess this mystery that God is one in three persons. And so we talked about the Father as the creator, the generous one, the source, the sovereign, all of that. And then we pivoted a couple weeks ago into talking about the second person of the Trinity. Who is God? The Son, as in Jesus. And a few weeks ago, Pastor Jason talked about Jesus as fully God and fully man and what it means to say both of those things and what it means to address Jesus as the Christ, the Messiah. And last week, we talked about Jesus as the healer. And as Jason and I were kind of planning this series, we're like, how, how do we narrow down what we're going to focus on? Like six or seven weeks on Jesus, like there's so many different themes. Should we do the I am statements or should we do this or that? And one of the things that struck both of us is as you read the Gospels, there are things that Jesus repeatedly is found doing. And we thought maybe we should look at that. And so last week we we talked about what it means to say that Jesus is the healer and how healing is such an important sign of what the kingdom looks like, God putting the world back together again. But there's this other thing that we always find Jesus doing in the Gospels, and that is he's always eating. He's always around food. And last week we said, look, are the miracles sort of incidental or are they intentional? And we're asking ourselves a similar question today. All of this food and drink business that we read in the Gospels, is this just sort of side detail, little color to the story? Or is there a reason that he's doing this? Think for a moment about some of these key moments. Jesus, in John's Gospel, his first miracle is to turn water into wine. He's at a wedding where they run out of wine. And if anyone had the impression that Jesus was a killjoy, it's like, no, he's like turning water into wine when they've run out. In one of the Gospels, in several of the Gospels, Jesus is accused of being a drunkard and a glutton because he's always feasting, sometimes with the wrong people. There's a notable story where it's the Sabbath and his disciples are hungry and he picks grain so that they can eat. He doesn't say, we should 
suppress our appetites because it's the Sabbath. He says, let's let's figure out a way to actually meet your need. There's something else going on here. The last miracle that Luke tells in his gospel is the resurrected Jesus walking with some disappointed disciples and being invited into their home for dinner. And he not only comes to their home, but he takes over the meal. He starts breaking the bread and blessing it and offering the grace. And you're saying, well, what's going on? How is Jesus doing this? And their eyes get opened. In John's gospel, the the risen Christ, one of his final moments with his disciples is breakfast on the beach that he's prepared. What's up with this guy and food? And so this morning we're going to talk about who is God the son, the banquet host. Or in Jane's words, the party planner. And the thing we're going to say this morning is a phrase that we're going to repeat over and over again throughout the the sermon this morning is that the hospitality of Jesus is for everyone. The hospitality of Jesus is for everyone. The feast that he offers, the provision that he offers is meant to be, is intended for everyone. The problem is we don't always choose it. We don't always choose to say yes to the feast that Jesus offers you. Sometimes when I'm traveling, and those of you maybe who, who find yourselves in long travel days, you, you, you maybe have experiences like this where I have a tendency to snack on the wrong thing. So a lot of times I'll go through a travel day and say, oh, I'll, I'll just, I'm not going to eat, I'm not hungry, I'm fine. And I'll pass actually some good options for food, like some decent restaurants. And then I'll get to the end of the travel day and I'll be like, I'm, now I'm starving. And when you're tired and hungry, if you're like me, you don't make great food decisions in that moment. And so then I'm like, well, now it's 10 o'clock and the only thing open is Wendy's. So you can eat great even late. Not sure about that. But then I find myself with a spicy chicken sandwich in my hands thinking, how did I end up here? Sin will always take you where you don't want to go. Like I said no to the salad earlier. I was trying to like be good. I thought maybe I'll just, you know, go to bed. But here I am with a spicy chicken sandwich in my head. What happened, Lord? This is what happens to us is along the way in life we have these good intentions. I'm going to feast with Jesus. Jesus is offering me his life, his joy, his peace. And we say, yeah, I want that. But then sometimes weariness gets the better of us. Fatigue gets the better of us. The toll of Carrying the stresses of life gets the better of us and we find ourselves at the wrong table with the wrong meal. And so as we look at Jesus and his hospitality, we're actually going to compare two tables. We're going to compare Herod's feast with Jesus' feast. And the way Mark's gospel lays this out for us in Mark 6, you can turn there. Mark's gospel sets these two feasts side by side. It introduces us to a party that Herod has thrown And then right after that, right on the back of that story, comes a story of Jesus throwing an impromptu banquet. And we're going to make three observations about Herod's feast versus Jesus' feast. And if you want to use your imagination this morning, every time you see the word Herod, think about the world apart from God. The culture without the influence of Jesus. The general flow. Maybe you might be, you're in a corporate setting. You might think, actually, that is how corporate America is bent. Or maybe you're thinking about the flow of uh, conversations among your peers in class. And you say, that is actually the way it bends. Herod's feast versus Jesus' feast. Mark 6, 
Verse 21, it says, But an opportunity came when Herod on his birthday gave a banquet for his courtiers and officers and for the leaders of Galilee. In order to get in on Herod's party, you have to be important. You've got to be the right kind of person. You've got to have the right credentials. You've got to be impressive. You've got to have the right kind of status. But then verse 33, let's parallel this. Now many saw them, Jesus and his disciples, going and recognized them. And they hurried there on foot from all the towns and arrived ahead of them. Catch the contrast. One is a group of people that were the who's who and they were invited. The other is a group of people who invited themselves. There goes Jesus. I'm going to follow him. There they go. I'm going to just, we're just going to crash. Whatever they're doing. They're, they got a personal retreat. Uh-uh, I'm going. Two different kinds of people. And the first observation we're going to make is that Herod invites the important people. But Jesus welcomes everyone. Jesus welcomes everyone. Hospitality in the ancient world was only offered to someone who made you look good if they received your hospitality. Someone that would make your status sort of more um, prestigious. Like, oh, did you see who was at his thing? Now, I don't know if you've ever... um, had the experience of being at an event, maybe a, a party or uh, a thing where you recognize all of a sudden, like, man, we're, we're, uh, we're at the wrong place. We don't belong here. The strange thing is, this can sometimes happen in the church world. And so we, we've, we worked hard, New Life Downtown, we're coming up on 10 years, but 10 years ago, the summer of 2012, when we were starting to launch groups and small groups at New Life, we said, Let's make it easy for everyone to, to believe that they could belong in that group. And I, this is how it sometimes happens in church world is you kind of have this like, well, this is the group for people who are serious Christians. And then this is the group for like, you know, just whatever. And so someone starts their like deep dive into the Romans Bible study. And then someone else is like just reading a book, just reading a book or whatever, right? And so then you're like, you know, Sally, she's always in that, that book club group. And then all of a sudden Sally wants to join the Romans group. And you're like, oh, Sally, I don't, this may not be for you, Sally. And we didn't want to create those internal religious hierarchies that happens in church all the time. This is for serious people. This is for uh, casual. And we said, what if we created groups? And to this day, we call them meal groups. Evan helped us start it. Pastor Jay leads it today. And meal groups are very simple. It's like, let's meet together, eat together, share something with each other, and then pray. And the reason we did that is not because we didn't want to, like, you know, administrate which book is being used and not, although that is part of it. The reason we chose that is the, philosoph- the philosophical choice of saying, we want groups to be a place where everybody feels welcome in this place. It's a pretty simple description. We just want you to meet, eat, share something, and then pray for one another. Make this a place where everyone is welcome. Make this a place where everybody can belong. And even over the years as we've added courses, you heard from Martha this morning. Martha leads a, a, a newly married kind of group. Even when we've had things that come alongside stages of life and people in different seasons of life, our, our heart has to never niche things so much that you could show up at a New Life downtown thing and, and feel like, oh, I don't belong here. I'm at the wrong thing. Our, our heart and our hope has always been. And he, I, I say this now because as we're coming through the pandemic, many churches are talking about this season not as a return but as a relaunch. 
And so in a very real way, we have to remind ourselves of these values and these decisions because we're relaunching something here. And as we create ways of extending this hospitality to everyone, the goal is to be able to recognize that this isn't just for the important people or the spiritual ninjas. This is for everybody. Everybody, Who gets to come? Everybody gets to come. Everyone gets to be here. Later, after the service, I'll walk a block north and a block west over to our office space, our mid-size space, the commons, and we'll have a lunch today for anyone who's been new or, or newish to New Life downtown. And, and people always ask us at New Life Next, they always say, how, how, how do you become a member here? Now, I get it. There's, there's some really, really great reasons for different decisions about membership. For us, it's a little bit simple. Um, the, the guest card, that's great. You signed up for this stuff, great. Um, you're aware of, of all that's going on, you're, you're committed, but there's actually this subjective, subtle shift that happens in your heart. It's when you start talking about the church in the first person. When you, or not the second or third, you don't say, you guys need to, or the church ought to, but you start saying, you know what we should do? That's when, I, oh, something just happened here. Now, now it's your church. It's our family. You feel welcome here and you're ready to welcome others. The hospitality of Jesus is for everyone. The hospitality of Jesus is for everyone. As we keep going in the story, Mark 6, verse 22, it says, When his daughter Herodias came in and danced, she pleased Herod and his guests. And the king said to the girl, Ask me for whatever you wish and I will give it. This is a moment in the party where someone literally does a song and dance and then gets attention. And, the, and Herod is the kind of king that only grants favors when he's been impressed. Contrast this with Jesus. Verse 34, it says, he went ashore and he saw a great crowd and he had compassion for them. What did the crowd do? The crowd sing for Jesus, the crowd dance for Jesus, the crowd like, they quote the Torah to Jesus. What did the crowd do? They, sh- they were just there. They just showed up. And Jesus had compassion for them because they were like sheep without a shepherd. Now, this phrase, we're going to talk about it next week, what it means to call Jesus the shepherd. But this phrase, shepherd, it has a powerful backstory in the Old Testament. It's not just sort of like a picture of like gentle Jesus. Shepherd is, it was Israel's most significant metaphor for their king. And it's important that Mark drops this line in there. He's just told us a story about the king of the Jews, Herod. And then now he says Jesus had compassion because they were like, not just sheep without a shepherd, translate that, they were like people without a king. Jesus is recognizing there is a king, but he's not a good one. And he had compassion for them because he's saying, who's taking care of you? Who's ordering you? Who's helping you? Who's creating the circumstances that lead to your flourishing? Is there anyone who's doing this? But what we notice about this story is that Herod has to be impressed before he acts. Herod is the kind of, this table is the kind of table that has to be impressed before it acts, before it provides for you. Some of you are like, that, that's pretty, that, yeah, you, that's like how my job works. Like before I get this and before I get this, before I even feel a sense of belonging, I've got to. Herod has to be impressed before he acts, but Jesus acts because he is full of compassion. Jesus acts because he's full of compassion. Over the years, um, I found myself in different settings where the person who's organizing the event is doing a quick sort of calculus of who the who's who's are in the thing, 
in the gathering. I mean, years ago when I was with the Desperation Band, we'd travel, we'd do these music events. There were always these promoters or whatever. And they're, all, they're, they're scanning when a group walks in and they're like, who's the lead singer? And they never guessed it. You know, I, I, I was one of them. You know, it was like, that's probably the IT guy. You know, so they would go find the other. And that's real. That's real. And they go, oh, that, that guy, that's the guy we got to talk to and get close to. Recently I, was at a, recently, I was at an event, and it was very clearly an A-list table. Very clearly. And the reason I know is because not only were all the, the who's who's at the table, I, and I was not, I was at a different table, but there was someone who was at my table, and the organizer came and moved his name card from my table to the other table. <laughs> and so then you're like, oh, I get it now. I see it. Where I, I'm not at the A-list. And maybe you've been at, at, at corporate events or different things like that. You know, uh, you, 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 you see it. These things sort of happen. We kind of have a calculus for who we should care about. That's how Herod was. Herod had to be impressed before he would act. But the hospitality of Jesus is for everyone. The hospitality of Jesus is for everyone. And when I think about us as a church, I think, you know, I was talking to someone after the first service and he said, Glenn, don't you think that sort of post-COVID... We're kind of all relearning our social skills. I was like, maybe. He's like, we're kind of, we, we used to like, we're used, we've gotten used to like engaging in short bursts and then we get kind of worn down now. Like, how, how do we have people in our homes again? How do we be in other people's homes again? It's true. I, and, and one of the, the markers for us as a team at New Life Downtown, yes, we're, we're paying attention to who's able to come and regather with us. But actually, what we really are looking at is how are people gathering in each other's homes? Like, that's the marker of a healthy community when we're ready to not just be welcome here, but we're ready to welcome each other. And maybe some of that is recovering after a pandemic. Maybe some of that is learning how we do this. But maybe some of it is changing our calculus for who we care about. Sometimes in times of crisis, we actually, maybe of necessity, shrink down the circle of who we welcome. And maybe that's understandable in a crisis. But if you carry on that muscle memory post-crisis, you'll end up with a very small circle. And here we are. We've got to intentionally break through and remember, oh, remember that muscle? Remember where we would just like invite a group of strangers after church and say, hey, you guys want to go grab brunch? Remember when we, should we do that again? What if we remembered those, relearned those muscles? So we remember when it it was, when we had Easter lunch and, and we were like empty nesters and our kids were not coming home and we were like, who should we invite to join us this year at Easter lunch? What if we learned those muscles again? Instead of circling back up to our, our, our tight kind of thing of the, the ones that we notice, the hospitality of Jesus is for everyone. As the story goes on, verse 27, it says, immediately the king sent a soldier. Let me say one more thing There's one more about the previous thing. Herod notices status. Jesus notices their state. Herod notices status. Jesus notices notice their state. It said he had compassion on them because their state was they were like sheep without a shepherd. I wonder for us if there's times when we say, well, you know, who, who, where, and we could say, you know what? What if I, God, give me eyes not just to recognize people's status, but give me eyes to recognize their state. 
Actually, they're in a place of need right now. Actually, we need to come alongside them right now. Okay, now we can move on. Verse 27, immediately the king sent a soldier of the guard with orders to bring John's head. If you're the underlining kind or the note-taking kind, you can, you can write down or circle that word orders. Herod issues orders. The king sent a soldier of the guard with orders to bring John's head. And he went and beheaded him in the prison, brought his head on a platter and gave it to the girl. And then the girl gave it to her mother. I mean, this is a gruesome story. Uh, A a shocking scene if you think about it. Don't think about it too long. Verse 39 then it says, back to the Jesus story. After he sees them, has compassion on them, wants to feed them. It says, then he ordered them to get all the people to sit down in groups on the green grass. Now pause here for a moment. The word order shows up in both stories. Herod issues orders and Jesus issues orders. Can I say something to you? We are living in a cultural moment where people are nervous about power and rightly so. But I was talking to a friend this week and he's a theologian, teaches at, at Talbot Seminary at Biola. And he said, he said guys, the, the power is not the problem. He said power is not the problem. It's how power is expressed and to what end. This is his, his line. He wrote, in fact, his name's Kyle Strobel. He wrote a book called The Way of the Dragon or The Way of the Lamb. Power itself is not the problem. It's how power is expressed and to what end. Herod uses his power and someone dies. Jesus issues an order and there's about to be provision that arrives for people. I say power is not the problem because we're living in a moment in history where we're watching the wrong exercise of power over in Europe. And we're watching, we're watching one nuclear superpower flex its muscles on an, a peaceful neighbor and, and, and drop bombs and attack civilians. It's heartbreaking as we watch it. But the answer is not to say, well, no power. It's the right use of power to restrain evil. Some of you serve in the military. You're like, what, what, what do I do? One of the, one, and there are, there's a, a, a wide Christian tradition, but one of the ways to understand power as a Christian is to say, let's use it to protect and defend and restrain evil. All of us who care about injustice in the world, the answer is not to remove power, it's the right use of power to turn the wrongs into rights. So power is not the problem. Both Herod and Jesus issue orders. But here's what we notice, our third and final observation. Herod's commands create death. Jesus' commands create provision. Herod's commands create death. Jesus' commands create provision. Let's go back to Mark 6. Pick it up in verse 40 here. It says, So they sat down in groups of hundreds and of fifties. Taking the five loaves and the two fish, he looked up to heaven and blessed and broke the loaves and gave them to his disciples to set before the people, and he divided the two fish among them all. We could do a whole leadership seminar here on the two leadership strategies of Herod versus Jesus because both of them issue orders that other people have to carry out. You catch this? Herod issues a command, but it's the soldier who has to actually take the knife and cut the head. I mean, it's, it's, it's terrible. Now, what, would it, what if that soldier woke up on a Monday morning and was like, I didn't think that today was going to be a day where I would, you know, Take a life. But Herod's orders put the person under him in a position where he became worse than he might have been on his own. Bad leadership makes people worse than they actually are. Makes them act in worse ways. Jesus 
think about this for a moment. Jesus does the miracle of multiplication. He could have also done the miracle of distribution, right? Like if you're going to multiply bread and fish, why not also be like Amazon Prime, Messiah style, and just drop it on their laps? Boom, there's lunch. Wow. But what does Jesus do? He gives it to whom? To his disciples. So they can give it to Good leadership makes other people better than they actually are. Better than they actually are. The disciples, the other gospels tell us, the disciples actually didn't want to feed these people. <laughs> Luke tells us that the, the disciples were like, send them away. I mean, Jesus could have been like, okay, guys, I have compassion for you. Like, I, I really love you. These guys, they're kind of tired of you. But hey, I love you. So I'm going, I'm the best. I'm the greatest. I'm going to give you, I've, nobody's loved you like I love you. And I'm going to give you the best bread, the best fish. He could have hogged all of the limelight, but Jesus doesn't work like that. A bad leader makes people do worse things than they want to. A good leader pushes us toward righteousness. Jesus shares this work with his disciples. See, this is what I'm trying to show you is Herod's commands create death, but Jesus' commands create provision. Maybe some of you, you're in a management position at work, and you're like, man, I, there's not a lot I have control over, but I do have control over my team right here. Think about how your structure can actually bring peace and provision for the people under you. Structure is a good thing. Did you know that structure is a good thing? Just like power is not the problem, structure is not the problem. Administration is not the problem. In fact, good administration brings peace and provision. The, the, Jesus, having them sit in groups of 50s and 100, it's, it's actually reminiscent of Moses' father-in-law, Jethro, saying to him, Moses, you're worn out. You're, you have no administration. You have a good heart, but you've got no administrative skills. He's like, here's what you need to do. Create some structure. And then have other people do this stuff. Good structure creates peace and provision. It's also reminiscent of Joseph. Joseph does this with Pharaoh. He says, here's what we need to do to order our supplies. Good structure creates peace. It's also what the early church will do in the book of Acts when they have to, to help the widows. They structure them in groups. Some of you think that the best kind of church is organic, but what you mean is chaotic. <laughs> and you're like, why do I have to apply to be a volunteer? Because good structure brings peace and provision. Somebody say amen. Amen. You Believe me, you want a person who's gone through a process before they wander the halls where kids are. You, you want that. Good structure brings peace and provision. The hospitality of Jesus ends up being for everyone. Herod's orders and commands create chaos and only a few benefit. But Jesus, because of his commands that bring peace and provision, the hospitality of Jesus ends up being for everyone. As it turns out, food is not just central in the Gospels. It's actually a key metaphor throughout the Scriptures. The very beginning in the story, God puts two trees in the garden. It's the original eat this, not that. And he says to them, you can eat everything else. Notice that the provision that God offers is always more. And the temptation is always less. Eat all these trees. The devil's like, but you can't eat this one. That's the way sin works. God's, God's options are always super abundant. 
The devil's options, it's just like this one thing. Why can't I have sex outside of marriage? Why can't I do this? Why can't I decide? Oh, the Bible is, God is so, so oppressive. Did you miss all the provision over here? But the devil starts messing with Adam and Eve and he says, start to focus on the one no instead of the thousands of yeses. And sin enters the world by eating. (laughs) By eating at the wrong tree. It's no accident then that the temptations that the devil brings to Jesus that one of them involves eating. He says, oh, you're fasting, you're hungry, you're weak, you're about to make bad choices. Take this stone and turn it into bread and eat it. And he's like, no, man does not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. Jesus knows that sin and salvation is really a story of what you're eating. You become what you eat in some sort of cosmic eternal sense. Eat at the wrong tree, sin enters the world. Refuse the temptation and the path of salvation becomes clear. And of course, the story of salvation reaches its pinnacle moment when Jesus offers his own body and blood and says, eat this, not that. Don't try to provide for yourself. Don't try to be your own source. Take me as your portion. Take me as your cup. I am the provision for you. And then as we heard in our New Testament reading this morning, the final, one of the final scenes of the Bible that's previewing the, the end of the ages is a great banquet. Isn't that something? A great feast. We're never meant to imagine God as a miserly Scrooge who says, you can't do that, and you can't do that, and you can't. But the, the problem is that's what we've grown up thinking about God. That all of the laws and all of the rules is just God trying to shrink down our story and kind of cramp, cramp our style and make us live in a smaller way. When actually the truth is God's always trying to offer us a better feast and a better banquet. And he's saying, the reason I'm saying eat this, not that, is because I don't want you to die. I want you to live. I want you to live. As the worship team comes this morning, the question that remains for us is, whose banquet are you feasting at? Whose banquet are you feasting at? Yes, Jesus offers it to us, but so often we refuse it. Or we convince ourselves that what he's offering is not actually good. If you're a C.S. Lewis fan, maybe you've read the Chronicles of Narnia yourself or to your kids. But the final installment of the Chronicles of Narnia is a book called The Last Battle. And in it, C.S. Lewis has a story of these dwarves who are so burned out by being deceived. They've been deceived so many times about a fake Aslan and they start to believe that it's all false and they don't need Aslan who's the Christ figure in the Narnia series. And so they're into, through the stable, into the new Narnia, the sort of new heavens and new earth kind of picture. And a banquet arrives before them and they're eating like this amazing, you know, whatever, turkey leg or something. But in their minds, it's dirt. And in their mind, the dwarves are like, this is awful. And they're like, gagging. It's gross, disgusting. It's because they got in their heads that this is what, what they were being offered isn't actually good. 
The biggest lie the devil pulls off is to get us to flip what we think is actually good. And we start saying, oh, that, this is what Jesus is giving me. Oh, that, ah, I don't want that. And we think, you know, you know what I need? I need my freedom to do my own thing. I will provide my own table. And we think that's good. Except that it's a lie. The worst kind of Herod is you. The worst kind of Herod is me. It's been said that idols promise everything and demand nothing at first. But the longer you worship them, they end up demanding everything and giving nothing. Some of us are feasting at the wrong table because we took a plate that was one of God's good gifts and we said, this is not just a plate, this is my whole table. And so you took your, your job or your marriage or your relationship and you said, oh, or your career, and you said, oh, instead of saying, thank you, God, for this good gift at your table, you put it over here and you said, this is my everything. This is my entire table. This is where I get my identity and my security and my purpose from. This is the table I'm going to feast from. And eventually you realize this is not a good feast. It's not, this is a cruel master. I made my career everything and it ended, it ended up being like this tyrant. It was very Herod-like. Almost lost my head over it. <laughs> Which banquet are you feasting at? For others of us, we're at the right table, but started to believe that actually Jesus is like Herod. So you're here, you're Christian, you're following Jesus, you're at church, but you, you, you sort of thought Jesus is like Herod. So you're at church trying to sing and dance and impress Jesus. And every time you pray, you're like, oh, God, uh, this is my spiritual resume. This is all the stuff I've done. And God's like, I, I already have compassion for you. What are you, what are you doing? You're like, Before I get you, maybe you, maybe you came back to church. Maybe you're watching online because you found yourself in a crisis moment. And you're like, well, I better get my life back together so God will help me. I got good, I got good news for you. God saw you and had compassion on you. God loved you moment he laid eyes on you you don't have to impress him with your spiritual resume or your church attendance and all that so don't don't do that to impress God you don't don't sign up to serve because you're trying to impress God he doesn't need that he's not like Herod he already has compassion on you and not only that he has welcomed you at his table he's the God remember who when the wine runs out will turn water into wine. He's the God who always makes sure that even after feeding thousands, there's more left over. He's the God who always is more than enough. We don't live in a kingdom of scarcity. We don't live under a miserly king. We live in the God who has more than enough. More than enough. More than enough grace. More than enough mercy. More than enough peace. You don't have to come to church saying, Bruh. I haven't been as good as that guy. Maybe they'll get all the help today and not me. There's no crumbs at the king's table. There's no crumbs at the king's table. It's a feast today. So would you stand?